Hi everyone, I'm Beck and I'll be um, praying and then reading the Bible with you today. Um, so our second scripture reading is from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. So I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Before we read, please pray with me. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious King. Thank you for your love for us that brought Christ to bring us to you. Please be with Matt as he teaches from your word and please prepare our hearts and minds to hear your word so that we will know the truth of it and bear its fruit in our lives. Help us keep trusting the truth of your word in hard times and good times and draw us near to you. Amen. John chapter 17, starting at verse 6. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm uh, Matt. I'm uh, the pastor, one of the staff here at Big Park Presbyterian. Well, I wonder if you can uh, recall uh, your school days. This is easier for some of us than it is for others. For some, this involves recalling last Friday or Thursday. For others, our memory has to work back 50-odd years. Something you should have learnt at school, although I learnt at university I didn't learn at school, is how to write an essay. You know, the whole introduction, body, and then conclusion. And you may remember the formula in the introduction, say what you're going to say, in the body, say it, and then in the conclusion, say what you've just said. Say what you're going to say, say it, say what you've just said, and that way... 
the reader is in no doubt about the point you're trying to communicate. There is, of course, a problem with this recipe. And that is if you're like me, and you only know what you're going to say after you've said it. It kind of doesn't work. Indeed, for we've got a name, we're called verbal processes. For verbal processes, what ends up happening is that our introduction starts somewhere, three paragraphs in, it hits a bus, four paragraphs in, it falls off a cliff, five paragraphs in, we realise the wreckage before us, in the sixth paragraph and to the ninth paragraph, we try and piece it together and we land in the end at a point at which our introduction, if it saw in a lineup, wouldn't be able to determine who it was. And if that was all a bit too verbal processor for you, well, let me put it this way. We don't end with a big idea, we end with a word salad and a garnish of face palm emoji. Thankfully, our Lord Jesus is a much clearer communicator than verbal processors like me. And so when we come to John 17, which is the end of Jesus' kind of formal teaching ministry, in this scene he gives us a prayer, which is the longest, by some margin, the longest recorded prayer that we have of the Lord Jesus. He prays a lot throughout the Gospels, you hear about it, but this is the one we have a real window into what Jesus prays. And as he prays in chapter 17, it, it forms a kind of beautifully crafted conclusion of his ministry. That is, the last 16 chapters, or in time sense, probably four or five years of ministry, distilled into one potent concentrate. And he offers it up as a prayer which we have the privilege of listening into. And as we listen to the prayer, he hits all the high notes of his teaching in the gospel. He speaks about his obedience to the Father, his glorification through the Father, of how the Father is revealed in him, of how he chose the disciples out of the world, about how he calls us and them to unity, modeled on his unity with the Father and Spirit. He talks about the final destiny of God's people in his presence and the importance of love. You can kind of skip the first 16 chapters of John, get to 17, and you get a wonderful encapsulation of his teaching. And as we saw last week with Roy, and you can probably see it with your headings in your Bible, it can be broken up into three relatively neat sections. Section one, Jesus prays for himself, for his glorification. Section two, our section today, Jesus prays for his 11 disciples, excluding Judas, who we know has betrayed him at this point. And then section 3, verses, I think, 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all believers, including us. And so, our task this morning is to look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And we have to note at the outset that this is primarily targeted, at least its first audience, is those 11 unique men who lived and died 2,000 years ago. And so, we're kind of peering over their shoulders as Jesus speaks and prays for them. But as we do that, I hope you trust me when I say, I think there's things that we can learn, we can be encouraged and challenged by as we hear Jesus' heart for his 11 closest men. And here's the thing, Jesus conveniently continues that trend 
of intro, body, and conclusion, say what you're going to say, say it, then say what you've said in this section. Or to put it in another way, in verse 6, which is his intro to this section, it contains all the elements that then kind of cascade down the next 13 verses. So verse 6, this is the summary, the, the intro. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So this, I think, contains all the components that come after it. And I'm going to structure the sermon this morning to try and keep, you, keep me, verbal processor, remember, and you, inclined to naps at times, on track. Okay, and here's the four words they are going to structure this morning. The simple words, the word gave, the word name, the word world, and confusingly, the word word. Gave, name, world, word. And here's what we're doing. As we explore these four words, I hope they unlock these verses and then teach us something about who God is and prayer for us. Okay, seems like at least Marco's on board. All right, let's start with gave. Let me read, reread verse 6 again. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. Now, you might ask, what possible insight can you derive from a fairly bland past tense verb like gave? What insight is there into Christ's mind and his heart? Well, I want to say, actually, a lot more than you might expect because the word give gives us an amazing insight into the heart of God himself, the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, the God that if you're a Christian, you live for, that you serve, that you love deeply. We learn from the word give and gave that our God is a gift-giving God who delights to give. Our God is a gift-giving God who delights to give. And let me try and kind of demonstrate this by kind of like a shotgun barrage of lines from this prayer. Let me give you a sample, and you have your ears pricked to hear the word give, gave, gift, or granted. So verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you. For you granted, that's the same word in the Greek, you, give, you gave, you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work, work you gave me to do. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Verse 8, for I gave them the words, and you gave me that you gave me, and they accepted them. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Verse 14, I've given them your word. Verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Give, 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 grant, give, give. Our God is a God who is characterized by giving. The Father gives to the Son, the Son gives back to the Father, the Spirit gives to both, and to both is given. Or to put it a different way, 
our God radically contrasts with our world. A world that clutches, that hoards, that craves, that greedily grasps. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives. Yes, he gives us life. He gives us air in our lungs, sun in the sky, all good things for us to enjoy, Paul, Paul says in 1 Timothy. But ultimately, he gives that most precious gift of all, eternal life, eternal fellowship, communion, closeness with God himself. And here's where I think the kind of this washes out in our prayer. I won't speak for you, but let me speak for me. There's a part of us, there's a part of us that does think, particularly when we live beset by unanswered prayers, or at least prayers that we didn't like the answer to, that God is some kind of celestial smog, a great dragon in the sky who kind of clutches his booty and is unwilling to share. That he kind of, like that distant mother-in-law, gets off from being withholding in a weird way. That he is a stingy God who doesn't like to lavish blessing and life and love. And so here, as Jesus prays, the eternal son who knows his father like no one else, he shows us that in fact he is a giving, generous, a God who delights to lavish gifts on his son and through his spirit to his people. Not only that, there's a couple of wrinkles in it that are interesting to see. So again, verse 6, sorry, I keep on doing that, I'm going to keep on going in verse 6. I've revealed you, so that's Jesus saying, I've revealed you, the Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. And that kind of can wash over you because John's Gospel can do that. But let me kind of, let me try and make that really succinct. Do you know that you are a gift that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past? I mean, it kind of seems weird, like surely he had other gifts to give the son, right? Like literally everything. And yet here, Jesus is saying that the Father gave him in eternity past us as a gift. Not only that, but a gift that gives glory to Christ. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me, that's the Son, through them. As you're staring at the mirror on a Monday morning, wondering why God gave you the face he gave you, perhaps. As you stare at your life, wondering why it hasn't been the life that you'd hoped for, the life of blessing and success and achievement. Jesus wants you to stop and say, don't misidentify yourself. Don't sell yourself short. If you are a Christian, then from eternity, God chose you not only for himself, not only for his son, but as a means by which he might be glorified. Little old you and me, in God's grace, the means by which the son is glorified. 
It's a boggling thought, isn't it? That's our first word, gave. Our next word, name. So have a look at verse 6. Remember I said 6 is the key to unlocking the rest, and you get the words there. And if you look at verse 6, depending on your translation, you may well have just hit a snag. Because if your translation is the New International Version, which is like the, the most common English one, it's the one that we use as a church, it actually doesn't have the word name there, does it? Which is a bit of a problem, because I'm trying to make a big deal of the word name. Well, that's because, I mean, I love the translation, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not seeing it at all. It's trying to simplify things. But the Greek, it literally says, and if you've got an ESV or an NRSV or any, some other acronym that relates to a Bible translation, you'll probably have it there, where it says, I have revealed, I have manifested, perhaps, your name to those whom you gave me. So the question is, why does our translation, if you've got the NIV, like the church, like me, why does it drop name and just say you? seems to be a a big difference between revealing a name and revealing a person. Well, have a a skip down to verse 11, because I think 11 helps us unlock what's going on there. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name of you gave me, so they may be as one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. Which is, uh, if you think about it, it's just a bit weird. It's kind of not how we use the word name. I mean, how can a name protect? How can a name keep someone safe? How can a name have power? Well, over the last um, couple of weeks, last month, I've been re-watching um, the Harry Potter series, one to seven. haven't finished yet, but I've been re-watching it. Judge not, lest you be judged if you don't like Harry Potter. I've been trying to work out which one's appropriate for my two eldest girls. And look, it's been 15 years since I've read the books and about a decade since I've watched the movies. It's been a long time. But one of the things that kind of struck me as I, as I watched the series is how much caution there is about using, dare I say his name, Voldemort's name, the antagonist. People are petrified of using his name. Instead, he's called the Dark Lord. He who must not be named, or Hermione's favourite, you know who. Now, I've read enough fantasy books in my time to know this isn't just a Harry Potter thing. It's a common trope, a common theme in fantasy world when it comes to at least the bad guy. In The Lord of the Rings, Sauron's followers dare not use his name, and in The Wheel of Time, which is a bit of a boutique reference that no one else may have read, but in The Wheel of Time, his name is, at least one person has, his name, the Dark Lord, Shatan, I think, sounds a bit like Satan, his name is forbidden forbidden too. Why, though? Because while these books are fantastical, the work of fiction... They do touch on something true as far as at least the Bible is concerned, which is there's power in a name. Now, in the Bible, admittedly, it's not Satan's name. You can say that all you like. You'll sound weird, but you can. The analogy is not perfect, but actually in the Bible, it's the power of the all-powerful's name, God's name. 
In fact, many Jews today don't call God God. They'll call him the name because of the fearsome power of his name. But there's, it's not just that there's power in a name, or rather where that power derives from is the presence of what's inside, so to speak, the name. Okay, that's a little obscure. Let me explain it a different way. In the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible before Jesus comes, speaking of a name was a way, a circumlocution, to use the technical term, of speaking about a divine figure, both the true God, God himself, but also false gods, idols. Uh, let me explain it. If you've got a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. You don't need to, but it might help. Verse 3. Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. To make this point, and the context is God is giving advice to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land and kick out all the pagan idolaters of what to do to clear out the land. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. You shall tear down... Oh, I got, I got a little excited. I'll give... I'll, I'll wait for Cam to find it, and that way I'll put pressure on him, and I'll know someone else has got it too. Excellent, he's there. Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their asherim, which is, think of it like a kind of, it's a bit weird, but a phallic totem pole, that's what, a, that's what an asherim is. Destroy it with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. To banish the god is to banish their name, their kind of presence. And then verse 11, this is made positively clear when it talks about God's temple or his tabernacle. Then to the place the Lord God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. To speak of the temple is to speak of where God's name dwells, which is, in other words, to say where God himself dwells. Well, let me give you another one. If you want to turn to Isaiah, that's kind of the back end of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 30, I'll give you some time to get there, verse 27. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, just to kind of make the point land, hopefully. got there too quickly, so I can't use him as a guide, but rustling's about stopped. Isaiah 30, verse 27 to 28. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. To speak of God's name is to speak of God's very self. So coming back to John 17, 6, the reason why our translation, if you have a New International Version, NIV, drops name and just says you, is kind of legit. It's because to reveal God's name is to reveal God himself. And what does that mean? Why are we going here? It means that if Jesus reveals God's name, in verse 11 it says that he bears God's name, here Jesus is claiming to be nothing less than the very presence of God himself. It's a divine claim because he carries a divine name. There's power and presence in that name. And you might not know, but that's why Christians, when we pray, we almost always pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 
That's why in John's Gospel, time and time and time and time and time again, Jesus says, pray in my name, ask for this in my name, ask for that in my name, ask for this in my name. Because there's power and presence in a name. Not as some kind of magical incantation, but to say that this prayer is addressed to the all-powerful God who's known by his name in Jesus. And also, uh, you might well know the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. If you don't, that's fine. It's like a really famous kind of song in the Bible. And it's got this famous line, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. This is saying more than on Judgment Day, there's going to be a massive loudspeaker and all of the universe is going to hear the name Jesus really loud. No, it's saying that on Judgment Day, everyone will recognize they're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will encounter that terrifying or terrifying majesty, glory or shame, depending on whether you believe or not. And whether you believe or not, the sheer magnitude of that will cause you to bow the knee and confess Jesus' name. Okay, gave, name, third word, world. Third word, world. Well, kind of over halfway there, we're doing well. All right, the, the word world pops up a, a, a heck of a lot in John's Gospel, way, way more in the, uh, than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and particularly in our section. If you do a little Google thingy, it, 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 it pops up 12 times in this, in this section, 12 times. And it, perhaps it most famously pops up in this section in verse 14, a very sobering verse. Let me read it for you. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. It's a promise here to the disciples, but unfortunately we get similar ones too later in the Bible, that we will be hated for obedience to Christ's word. Hated by the world. But it's important we actually know what the word world means here. So very occasionally in John's Gospel, world is a kind of neutral term. It just refers to the physical world. It's kind of like a synonym for earth. I'll give you an example. You don't need to turn there. Last verse of John's Gospel. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have had room for the books that would be written. Just kind of means a physical location, earth. But that's incredibly uncommon. That happens like maybe twice, three times in John's Gospel. Jesus means something different. So have a look at verse 6 again. I have revealed you to those whom you have give, gave me out of the world. Okay, Jesus is not, just in case you're getting excited there, he's not talking about an intergalactic space adventure. When he talks about choosing them, giving them out of the world, He's talking about a spiritual sphere, a kind of system that is the world. Well, to put it aside, one guy much smarter than me says this. The world is a way of talking about the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs, in rebellion against its maker, living not in light but darkness, not seeking truth but living in lies. The world for John is not a place, but a way of being and a way of living. And it's this world that the disciples are saved out of, spiritually, kind of metaphorically speaking. 
that might still be a little obscure. So another helpful place to go is 1 John. So the guy who wrote the book of John wasn't done with that. He wrote three other little letters and a really big one at the end called Revelation. Anyway, one of them is called 1 John, and he says this in chapter 2, and he kind of gives us a definition of the world here. If for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John says the human condition, the human experience, underneath it all, unwrap it, unpeel away the layers, at its heart, what pulsates and throbs is a lust, a greed, and a pride. Lust and a greed and a pride. And ultimately, that sets its face against God. That orientates the world not toward God, but away from God. And that is the logic of why the world hates us. Because we are oriented in different ways, in different directions. We have different ultimate allegiances. That's why John talks about being in the world, because we are physically in that place, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. Now, if you've been in Christian circles long enough, that in the world, of the world, that's like a little Christianese that you might know. It's true, it's helpful, I think. But I think there are two errors that you have to avoid when we talk about this, when we talk about this world hating us. Okay, two. Mistake one, and then we'll spend more time on mistake two because that's my mistake. Mistake one is the mistake of withdrawal. That is, to know that the hate is coming, and so you kind of lift up the drawbridge, draw back into a holy huddle. Now, after all, who actually wants to be hated, right? And... Time and time again in Christian community, sometimes very obviously so, that has been the tactic to avoid the world's hate. But notice that's actually the opposite of what we're called to do. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Not only that, but think about John's most famous verse, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. For God so loved the world, remember that's not a neutral location, that's a world in hatred, in opposition, in animosity, in rebellion against God, and God responds to that hate with love and compassion. You see, our human nature, our worldly, fleshly instinct, I think, is when we see hate, is to do two things, fight or flight. Withdrawal is the flight. The fight is to respond to hate with more hate. That's human nature. That's the world. And yet, God moves towards hate in love. And not just God, we are called to the same practice, to grasp the nettle, to more move towards in warmth, in warmth, towards the coldness of the world. To approach bitterness with tenderness, Cursing with blessing, disdain with embrace, lies with truth, cruelty with gentleness, hate with love. A tactical withdrawal is a sub-Christian response. Two, that's not my mistake. My mistake is to try and avoid the hate altogether by having everyone like you. We, we know this narrative, don't we? If I'm just nice enough, friendly enough, kind enough, then I can avoid that hate. 
I mean, Jesus couldn't, but maybe I'm just better at that than him. And then we think, actually, think about my relationships. I've got great relationships with my friends who never darken the doorstep of a church. My neighbours, my non-Christian family, they don't hate me, they love me. So actually, I, I can probably avoid this. And for a time, that is true. As far as it goes, that is, as Christians, we are, if we're living up to what Christ has called us to do, and many of us are, I think, we're often kind, compassionate, patient, long-suffering, generous. And often, we are the trusted confidant in the workplace, in the yard at school, in the family. We're the person who can be trusted on and relied upon, and we're loved for that. But there comes a time, and we know it because we feel it in our marrow, in our hearts, when we know that our faith in Christ will crash into that relationship like a wrecking ball. When our allegiance to Him will clash with their allegiance to the world, to themselves, to some other God. And we feel it sometimes when we finally pluck up that courage to share the gospel, to know that we're going to have to talk about sin and judgment and they're going to hate it. Or at work when we refuse to wear the rainbow or wear the purple pendant. When we refuse to join in the tax dodge. When we refuse to join in the character assassination of the boss. See, our silence is deafening in those moments. At that point, our true colours are revealed. And it's like we spent three and a half quarters in that kind of crazy bit behind the goals with all the Frio supporters and we're wearing our purple and we're yelling and we're, we're all on the same team and then someone grabs our shirt, accidentally rips it and suddenly underneath there is yellow and blue. And we're exposed for our alternative allegiance. And here's my message to you, and it's my message to me. Part of growing as a Christian, part of obeying Christ, part of growing some courage. One pastor used to refer to growing some testicular fortitude. Apply appropriately where relevant. Is this. Is to love the person more than you love them loving you. To love the person more then you love them loving you. That is what Christ is praying for here. Which brings us to our last word, which is the word word. What identifies the disciples ultimately as from another planet, so to speak, as an alternative allegiance? It's their obedience to the word. Again, verse 6, for I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now, yes, if you've read the gospel a few times, you'll realize that they're pretty inconsistent, that they're actually, on multiple points, failures as disciples, as friends. They abandon him moments later. Peter denies him, and yet Jesus is saying there's a kernel. There is something fundamental to these people where they do, even if inconsistently, they do have my words on their heart. And he says that is what separates them from the rest of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify, which is a kind of Bible 
word, consecrates a similar one, your translation might have, that means to set apart for a holy task. Set them apart. What sets them apart? The truth. Your word is true. What moves us in our life from darkness to light, from the kingdom of the world in rebellion into the kingdom of the sun, what moves us from an object of judgment and destruction to a holy implement, a weapon in God's army, it's ultimately God's word. God's word is our divine transport. It's the means of our kind of trans-dimensional travel from death and separation to life into God's presence. Now, the word word means lots of different things. There is the creative word. The word became flesh, John 1, 1, which is that, that, that God speaks and he makes creation. He sinks the pillars of the earth. He structures the universe by his very words. But that's probably not the word here. The word here is Jesus teaching about himself. It's what the Bible holds forth as truth about Jesus. And that is the means by which new life, spiritual life, eternal life starts. God's word to us. James says in James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It's God's word enshrined in our scriptures that brings us from death to life. It's the word that separates bone and marrow, divides soul and spirit. It's God says of himself in Jeremiah, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? God's word is a fire hammer. But we have such little confidence in it, don't we? I know I do. I stand up here on a Sunday morning, I like to think I'm preaching fire, hammering into my rocky heart and your rocky hearts. But so often, you and me, we're behind six-foot-thick reinforced concrete bunkers and I'm just spitting out water balloons at you. I mean, that's not true, but that's how it feels, right? And I think that's why people, they don't want word transformation. They want experience transformation because that feels more legitimate, deeper, so they go, what do they go for? They go for the right chord, the right lights, the smoke machine, the right mood. Or on the other end, you go for the bells, the smells, the ornate religiosity, the pomp and circumstance, the somber ritual. Because it feels like in those moments that God is really working in this place. But it's not our experience that sets us apart, that makes us holy. It's God's word. Now, don't mishear me, there is a place for experience. I'm a Presbyterian, and yet I had an experience once. But you've got to put it in the right order. Experience is second, third, fourth, fifth order. Primary is the word. Verse 17 again, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy by the truth. Your word is the truth. So that then, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's the Word, the Scriptures that prepare us for being in the world, but not of it, that set us apart for service. That is why at Vic Pass Presbyterian, God's Word, the Bible, is so central to what we do. 
because we know that that is the means by which God changes eternal destinies by his spirit. Okay, let me sum up. Let me try and do what I've never done in an essay, is actually return to our four points. Four things, gave, name, world, work. Gave, remember our God is a giving and generous God. Name, that Jesus is God himself, and in his name there is power when we pray. World, that we are to be in the world and not of it, to love the people of the world but not to love the world. And word, that it is God's word in our scriptures that brings us to life and that sets us apart for service. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you that we get to peer over the shoulders of the disciples as we hear Jesus' prayer for himself, for them, and for the world around. I pray, Father, that you might help us to grasp the depth, the beauty, the wonder of you as you're revealed here, but also the truth of what it might mean for the way we think about the world, for the way that we think about prayer. May we see more and more clearly that you are a gift-giving, loving, good God who sets us apart, who makes us holy and pure by his work, your work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.